Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. What gives me confidence about investment decisions? Rigorous fundamental research with portfolio managers focused on the long term who look beyond the spreadsheets to understand the companies they invest in from break room to boardroom, who know the only way to get a 360 degree view is to go around the world to get it. Can I rely on in-depth research to give me steadfast confidence? With Capital Group, I can. Back to the XY Advisor Podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and today I'm joined by Mark Bynum. G'day, Mark. Hi, Fraser. Good to see you. Or hear from yeah, you. Yeah, good to see. <laughs> good to see you too. We're actually looking at each other through the internet, but uh, but not in real life because we're both in lockdown. Funnily enough, yeah. how are you? Good. Although I this this lockdown does seem to be a lot more frustrating than the last lockdown. At least we were prepared for it, or we realised this is going to be it. But um, this last one, after being so many months in freedom, so supposedly, um, yeah, it's a bit tough to take this latest lockdown. But anyway, we'll yeah, get through it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, tell us about you. Tell us about what you're doing at the moment. Yeah, it's all a bit. It's all a bit strange, Fraser. It's, it's, I've, I've made the big leap, and I'm uh, giving up my authorized rep status as an advisor after 33 years. Uh, not because of. You know, there's a lot of things going on in exams and education and, and just not happy with the way the professional industry is. Uh, I'm actually still much uh, want to be an advocate for this profession and industry, and I've passed my exams, so it's I can always come back to being advised. But just so I wanted, I've just turned 60, uh, had a heart operation in the last couple of years, and just thought, well, I want one really big challenge, new challenge, and so getting into coaching and helping others, um, maybe the many rather than the few. And so has had as in my COVID project a new book. Uh, and so that's just been launched in the last week. And so everything's now moving towards that. Yeah, exactly. Very exciting times now. I've known you mm. for a number of years. And I really see this uh, from the outside looking in as something that you're, you know, your new transition towards you know retirement but obviously really in the in the process of giving back in a lot of ways to um to the profession and what you've seen and and, and not just the, to the profession but also to uh, the and you and we'll, we'll get into this a new wave or, or the next wave of clients for the profession so now let's start with uh, let's start with coming back tell us about your as you mentioned 33 years how did you get into this industry and and uh, and tell us about your you know your journey through it sure I it's a strange entry. I think actually for a lot of people before the education requirements coming in, and there's more of a standard pathway now. For many who came into this industry, it was always uh, just as an odd uh, occurrence happening. And for mine was exactly that. I was actually 1987, about July, and, and had been an electrical engineer for 10 years and decided that I wanted to get into this booming share market. Got a job as a share market broker, but I just said, well, I've done this for 10 years. I'm going to go around Europe for two months backpacking. 
Uh, and while I ha- was there, uh, the October 87 share market crash happened. So when I got back, the job I had was actually not there anymore and the person, and they were actually sacking everyone. So I went around the corner and met someone who was a fam- friend of a family. And he was doing something called superannuation. And all I knew about superannuation back then was it paid for my European trip when I left <laughs> engineering after 10 years. And so, uh, and after about an hour, I just asked him, well, what does he think where to go, it, uh, where this industry is going, or what would he see as a possible opportunity since I was now unemployed? He said, well, actually, come work for me. And he's been my boss and mentor for the last 33 years. And chap by the name of Eddie Lees and um, yeah so and never looked back um, so he was very much an old LUA MDRT type person you have to remember back 33 years ago late 80s AMP National Mutual was still at their height uh, high commission products were all that you could sell and he didn't believe in that and he uh, went into one of the first people I knew went into corporate super member benefits uh, savings plans financial planning uh, as well as having Life insurance is the core of any good financial plan. And so, yeah, he taught me and I've never looked back. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? How well that the first position you get into, and we always say we fell into it, right? Mm. It's it's the common it, it uh, the common catchphrase. And uh, and just so um, people know that LUA is the Life Underwriters Association, which form, which was uh, which was the precursor to the Association of Financial Advisors. Um, and so we do, we fall into, we fall into this, um, you know this profession, and then we that sort of mould you. And uh, how do you think that moulded you? That initial few years that sort of sounds like that's what, you know moulded you very much for around the rest of your career. It did, uh, probably in a couple of ways. Uh, one was you realise I think for a lot of people, as you said, you fall into this. You realise how little you know about financial <laughs> financial planning and savings. And I realised, I said, you know, the only way I was able to travel around Europe was I cashed in my super after ten years. I just didn't know about it. Uh, and so, having getting the education, doing the courses, and he was one to make sure uh, that I had a lot of education and self learning. And and I think that you know that's definitely a one of the winners of the last five, 10 years is the amount of education that the latest advisors have come through. But what he also believed the education was, was around, yes, you need to know your stuff. Uh, and as long as you feel confident, and I had my first retiree couple at 60 when I was only 30. So I said, well, how, why would they listen to me? I said, as long as you know your stuff that, and they feel confident and comfortable with you, that's the important thing. So you need to know your stuff. So education was very, very important to him. But for him, education was not just the technical, but also the soft skills. Uh, great believer in soft skills. And it was when I actually launched the book last week, I had a speaker uh, who was his existing client, retiree client now, and he was actually Eddie's one of Eddie's first clients who then became my client. And Chris got up and spoke and actually said, I remember Eddie uh, saying to me right back then, and this is nearly 35 years ago, and you'll and a lot of advisors will resonate with this. He said, okay, what do you think your greatest asset is, Chris? <laughs> and Chris said, oh, well, you know, of course, I've got this house. It's worth you know, $500,000. I've got a big mortgage, but it's worth five hundred. dollars He said, right, okay. How much do you make, Chris? He said, oh, about 50000 He said, okay, so how much do you think you're making in 10 years? Oh, well, $500,000. How much do you make in 20, 30, 40 years? Do you still think that house is your greatest asset? So, you know, even... You know, some things never change, and that still resonates with me as it did 
back then, and Chris still remembers it. Rem- remembers it. Um, the interesting thing was he is in a wheelchair, and for me to get him income protection was one of the uh, biggest accomplishments. I do remember he and his mate, um, and trying to get uh, income protection for someone in a wheelchair is is pretty tough. So yeah. yeah. I can imagine that, uh, you know, those profound moments in a human's life and the amount of them that come out of a financial advice experience is, you know, is pretty high. Um, it's fantastic that you mentioned Eddie and that you, you put praise on Eddie because I also feel that, you know, that obviously that massive um, influence in your earlier years around having a really, really strong mentor that could teach you all the, not just the product pieces, because that's the, I guess that's the easy part. You can read the, you can read mm. the, they were probably custom information brochures back then. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the PDSs of these days, uh, you can read the information, you can get the knowledge. Um, but it's just having those, that mentorship, I think is a really important part. Yeah, I totally agree. And I've, and I am hopeless at being held accountable to myself. Uh, I'm a human being and most people, you know, Financial advisors, I always see, you know, 40% maybe is the actual planning, but 60% is definitely the actual holding people accountable, even maybe higher, to make sure they reach their goals. And I just think uh, a lot of doctors are the worst patients, and I think a lot of financial advisors um, are the worst in holding themselves accountable like they do their own clients. And I absolutely believe anyone who is successful has a mentor. Has, has a few mentors. There's definitely, you know, mentor slash coach, I suppose. And it's no, you know, Roger Federer is the number one tennis player in the world and he has a coach, full-time coach, and it's not as if that coach can make him more talented, but he holds him accountable, makes sure he does the training, makes sure he does the drills and keeps him on that. And so, if, you know, if someone like Roger Federer, uh, Branson, all these people uh, have – uh, mentors and coaches, there's got to be something in it. And I've just never looked back. And I do find it really, you know, we have some, you know, you look at the Sue Viscovich, the Kim Paynes, there's plenty of coaches that we we can avail ourselves for and probably less than 10% of advisors do it. Uh, don't have mentors or someone to that. And it can be a very lonely business, our business. Uh, and I think, you know, that's nothing, that's definitely been highlighted through the whole uh, well, before COVID, you know, we had the floods, we had the fires, we had this, and a lot of the people, clients, the first people they turn to are their advisors, and their you know, advisors and nearly counsellors, and the mental health of our advisors. And I'm getting down definitely for the path of what we did at the AFA and the FBA were doing, is that we realised and saw the amount of uh, advisors struggling, and that how even if they're part of a big licence. They're on their own, and I think that's something uh, as a profession we definitely do need to to uh, do more for. Um, but yeah, having a mentor, someone who keeps you accountable, someone you see a month, make sure you're hitting your targets, um, make sure you've set the targets. Yeah, is absolutely imperative. Mm. It's a really interesting uh, to note because I think we all, as you know, as advisors, we got into the industry in the first place because we enjoyed helping people you know it's a very much a, the idea of you know helping other people and you know sometimes you, we really have to sit back and go well you know are we helping ourselves you're absolutely right there mm. yeah i think and i do think uh the old i like said LUA, the old from beginnings of the afa and 
having the older advisors, that's the one thing that I've always been really proud of. And, and you know, definitely a lot of advisors listening would understand that a lot of the older advisors told everything. You know, they, there was nothing they kept secret. This is what worked for them. This is what didn't work for them. And you can have it. And the only thing a lot of these older advisors uh, used to say was, when it's your turn, you need to give back. So, I've, you know, the light. Late Michael Murphy, who was an AFA president and from South Australia, always just said, "We've been put on this earth to serve," and I've and that's just struck a chord with me. And so, uh, and I've always been very happy to speak to any advisors or any groups or help in coaching. And if this is what worked for me, I was all my intellectual property, no problem about. Here it is. This is what worked because what's you know. We look after probably 10 to 20% of the market. There's there's a lot of market out there, and I do see a lot of other professions, accounting, lawyers. When you go up there and you see it, and it's all their intellectual property. They don't share. They don't see it. And you see anyone who comes to our conferences, and they say, we can't believe how much you guys share with each other. It's fantastic. And I that's one of the things I want to make sure our profession keeps. As we move more professional, you don't want to stop that collegiate aspect to our profession. Absolutely. Now, you did mention, obviously, some of the serving that you've done uh, with the Association of Financial Advisors. You spent, uh, well, 10 years, I guess we could say, yep. in, for, through different positions on the on the board, not just um, in local committees, but actually on the board. Tell us about your uh, your time with the AFA. Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's a wonderful um, period of my life. It was 10 years over 12, and I took two years off at one point. Uh, so I was New South Wales and ACT State Director for six years, uh, and I was the VP for two years, and then I was the National President for four years, uh, the last four years, until Mikey Novak uh, became the new President. And I suppose that was a really nice way of seeing how our profession has developed. Definitely, the AFA was a very much volunteer organisation uh, and it has been for the whole 75 years. Uh, and But really, as an association, it needed to come into the 21st century. Uh, and you can see from the range of CEOs that we've had over the last that period of time, uh, there were people right from the uh, Richard Clippen right there, so who, would, who was brilliant at bringing in people like myself and so many other, you know, had 30% volunteerism uh, when I first started uh, on the on the AFA, in every committee and all this. Um, and it's still probably about 15 18%, which is still great. Um, and you, But you had to just get in and do it yourself. Whereas then, you know, we were able to bring in specialists, marketing general managers in different professions. And so I suppose it went from, yes, a small bo- association body to a corporatized body. And so definitely with the last Phil Kewen, Brad Fox before that, there was definitely a focus on we need to corporatize um, this. It's... The whole, the industry, the the government, ASIC expect this, and uh, and the good thing actually, yeah, this we never never was really a target, but just the way the FPA has gone and the AFA, the the two organisations have never been closer. Um, so, and I think that's that's a great thing. We definitely had so much feedback from politicians and saying, well, you know, the AFA comes as from one point, the FPA comes in from another point. If you guys who represent pretty well over three quarters of the whole profession uh, come in together, it's a much stronger voice. And so definitely the last three years, that was an aim. You know, there's definitely things that we may not agree on philosophically or whatever, but if there is something that we're 
on the same page about why don't we do that together and definitely the life insurance framework uh, is definitely one of those where we actually had a joint committee and that met every I think virtually every second week and that was that was some of the stuff they were able to do with that and dealing with ASIC and the government has been terrific. Yep, I agree. Uh, uh, some of the things that uh, – let me unpack some of the stuff we went through there. Um, the idea around getting involved in any association or community or whatever that might be really does reflect on, as you said before, the, the volunteership, getting involved, actually people putting in – some volunteer time, and 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 then and then what they get out of it is a lot more than just you know what you get for your membership money, for example. I always say you get back things like this tenfold, and you do, you, you really do. And they always said, oh well, you know, it will take away from my work. No, one, you'll become more efficient at your work, but the people you'll meet, the as I was saying about you know one of those things I said that we found through the the fire, the floods and COVID was how you were so alone. Well, people who are part of an association or a committee and something like that, they weren't alone. Uh, they had people outside their own license, out, you know, within the general community that they've made, the friendships. Uh, people like just knowing yourself and what you've done, always you've just put your hand up phrase whenever there was anything needed. And it just you just get to meet so many more people, get to build your networks, get to build your friendships. Uh, and this is that's just fantastic. So the collegiate aspect of it is wonderful. But really, it was never it never took away from my own work. If anything, I was able to hear about from other people, well, uh, how do you do this? You know, you're doing this in your business. Um, what are you doing? And as I said, we no one has had a problem sharing, and it actually helped my business that I was part of these networks and part of these associations. Um, and at the end of the day, it does come out down to also when BOFA came about, we the government asked and ASIC asked for people to put in um, submissions. There was a less than a hundred submissions for BOFA. You know, out of 20,000, 25,000 advisors, and it does show that. There isn't a lot of people out there, you know, they say, you know, we don't want this, we don't want that. Well, have you actually put your hand up? And so I do think uh, putting your hand up and if the people out there thinking, well, do I really, I know I've got all this education and I've got all this, you'll always be busy. There will never be a period of life. Four years ago, we had our the Royal Commission. We were busy. So it's definitely, I'm just, and I'll get off my soapbox in a sec, but definitely volunteering, you will get so much more out of it. And that's whether it's the AFA, the FPA, SMSF, the MDRT, whoever it is, you will get um, more back than you than you put in because there is just so many upside to all this. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And uh, and also the fact that uh, it doesn't matter what uh, association or group or community group we're talking about. Um, I think everybody just gets involved in these groups because – you know they they want to do the right thing and they're and they're on a mission and all these groups have, have got their um you know people all believing in the the the, the, the cause. Tell us about uh, obviously in in the past, you know associations have have come from very different angles and had very different opinions and and haven't always seen eye to eye and and uh, and you know as you mentioned over the last few years I've been you know the associations have been coming together. In a lot of in a lot of ways, um, yes. different uh, you know one voice and you know from different people. T- tell us about that transition and, and maybe even what you think of the future. Okay, I think yes, it, it definitely came has come from two very different paths, and it was quite clear that you know it was just in the name LUA Life Underwriters Association to AFA that it was in seventy five years the majority of that time has been life insurance specialist. 
this, um, and pretty well for the first 60 of those years, you know, really up until early 2000, uh, life insurance people were specialists and they did not do super, didn't do investment. And definitely there was a new breed of advisors who wanted to do, who came into this industry, who wanted to do the investment, who wanted to get into shares, who wanted to get into superannuation and just didn't want to do that. And that sort of the FPA were very much, especially coming from America, were promoting that side of it. So I definitely saw people who were saying, well, I'm, I'm an FPA member because I just do investment. Um, you're a risk advisor, so of course you're with the AFA. And that's definitely traditionally where it's come from. And there was pros and cons for both of that. I definitely felt um, the ones who were getting taught risk or had risk as part of their, their offering definitely got taught more about the care factor because it's bloody hard to sell someone life insurance. It just really is. And so unless you actually had soft skills and had the care factor, and I definitely felt like from the 90s and early 2000, from the FBA point of view, we'll know we're more professional, where we look after investments and all that. uh, And this is what we do. So we're very much going down a professional accounting type route that we're doing this. Um, And where I really think it's come together uh, has really ever been since the 2008 global financial crisis, funny enough. So this is just my own view. Uh, And what I saw from then was that uh, people, and and I'm actually seeing a bit of a trend now, which I must be concerned for a lot of people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who are advisors, are doing it a little bit similar, so seeing some of the advisors talk um, to what happened in the 2000s, uh, 20 years ago, in that the share market was booming just f- right up until 2008. From 2000, 2008, people were leaving their jobs because I can do shares. This is so easy. I'm going to make so much money. And advisors definitely at that point were saying, I'm professional. I don't really need to know you. I'm getting you the best possible return. You pay me because I'm doing that. And it was all based on performance. There was nothing there on relationship. So of course, 2008 happened and people's portfolios dropped by 30, 40, 50%. And all of a sudden, uh, these people who didn't have the relationships with their clients and the clients are saying, well, what use are you? You know, I've just lost 50% of my money. What is that? And so I think that was a big transition. It happened in America. So I travel to America at least once a year and, and go to conferences there and see what's happening. That was a big turning point in America and was, was sort of reflected here in Australia in that advisors realize, even if I'm an investment advisor, if I don't actually have soft skills and ha- know how to build relationships, that's the same. And it, it was the opposite for the insurance guys. We know how to build relationships, but everything is changing. It's you needing to, you know, where it used to be a two-page customer advice record you know it was all changing so s statement advices everything was changing cpd points and so risk advisors were having to learn well we have to be um do the education on not just insurance but on everything else super because insurance is under super tax deduct tax and everything like that so there was very much emerging ever since 2008 for i think two reasons but they're just complementary definitely when i see what the fpa FPA doing in the soft skills in the life insurance side is fantastic. What the AFA are doing in the investment side and super side and helping educate. Um, so, you know, that's why I see there's a lot of similarities. Now, there's more similarities than not. Um, and so, if I was looking at this, um, I think 
if it was five years ago, could I still see the two organizations um, being separate, but just joining on mutual um, uh, mutual points that they, if they're wanting to uh, deal with the government on? Yes, I do. Yes, I would. But now there's two things that have happened. One is um, due to the whole FASIR education, our 25,000 um, visors will probably end up around 15,000. Uh, so you're going to nearly have a third of your membership disappear. So therefore, revenues are lower. The second thing is definitely insurance companies, super funds, licensees, banks don't have the money they used to have. So from those two revenue points of view, it's very hard for uh, two major organizations to be able to provide the services that they used to or are. And so something, um, and I actually thought when the FPA built the single disciplinary body, which they built for the industry and everyone was going to be part of, I thought was the start of something coming together. But now that's being not uh, taken out of our hands. I think in the background, both organizations, I'd be surprised if they weren't looking at this as a plan B. It, it's just simply that. you know, There's got to be a point where finances, revenues, if they keep dropping, and we just don't know how far membership will really drop uh, with this. Um, and so, yeah, looking at it maybe as a plan B, maybe it's a plan C or plan D, uh, but definitely there's too many things they're helping their membership with to be a priority, but it would be surprised if it's not being looked at in the background in some way or another. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There's, mm. there's two aspects of this. There's obviously emotional history, um, and it's very emotional, the history, and then you've also got the practical, the numbers. You know, I guess I guess this is how we do financial plans, as, you know, at the, as advisors, right? It's around looking at the numbers, but the emotional factors involved as well, and then working out whether, um, you know, the numbers aren't going to lie. Uh, as you said, you know, everything's mm. going to get tighter. Um, and I think things change. I, I was there when I remember – you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago and hearing advisors talk about each other's associations. And, you know, there was, it came, it was hatred. It was really, there were some serious issues people had with each other's uh, associations and, you know, heard, you know, over my dead body. Um, So, but things change. Uh, Circumstances change. And where, you know, what we, what was happening 20, 30 years ago, if they look, if they saw what advisors now had to do to provide a piece of uh, advice for insurance, they'd be shocked. You know, a thirty-page yeah. SOA for a piece of life insurance—it's just, yeah, it's yeah. it's just it's a very very different world, and you just have to, you know, the deal you dealt with these certain cards, and you just you've just got to play the hand you've got. Simple yep, as that. Fair enough. Mm. Fair enough. Now, we might round out that conversation about the, the, the associations. Thank you. Yeah. And by the way, thank you uh, from me, Mark, for all of the um, your 10 years of service and giving back to the community th- through those roles in the association work, by the way. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. Um, the next part, I, I guess one of the things that you did do there, though, that you were championing uh, was the idea of how do we help consumer? And obviously, we know – from a profession point of view, we help the top 10% of consumers who can afford to pay for financial advice. And then there is an underlying line of you know, a whole lot of people who really would benefit from financial advice, consumers that would benefit that don't necessarily uh, you know, have the, the idea yet to go and pay for that advice, whether they have feelings that they can't afford it or whatever it might be. 
But going to a more of a, how do we help this, you know, 80, 60, 80% of consumers that would benefit from financial advice and let them know the message of, of, of how financial advice works and what, what it might do for them. And one of the things that you were did while you were there um, was looked at a, um, the idea of taking that idea to consumer through things like an expo and to tell us about those. Sure. It was both the AFA and the FBA has as one of their pillars uh, looking after the consumers, direct consumers, and they do it in different ways. And one of the things we did do a few years ago um, just after the Royal Commission, so some people didn't like the timing, but I just thought, well, when better than when we're getting so much negative uh, presses to try and do something positive? Um, and one of the things when we did do the Consumer Expo, and there's a lot of things learned and a lot of things we'd have done differently, but at the basic core of it, meeting some of the individuals that just came in over those two days and they weren't coming in and talking to me or talking to some of the other volunteer advisors about, well, what do you think about ETFs and, you know, give us some share market tips or something like that. They were just asking simple questions like, how do I start a savings plan? Will I ever have enough to retire on? You know, I just feel like I'm going to have to work forever. And you hear some of their stories and you just realize this is real Australia. This is middle Australia. Um, It's not what a lot of the clients we see day to day who can afford our advice. And I think that was the other thing that's so much through the lobbying of the last four years and meeting politicians and why they all kept saying, well, we definitely, no, of course we want to keep advice affordable. That was from what was their face was telling us, but from behind, uh, you know, we were every ASIC was raising their fees, compliance was getting more, uh, our education requirements were getting more. So everything an advisor was facing is increased cost and increased compliance. So, yes, it sounds wonderful to keep advice affordable, but just in reality wasn't. And these are real people. And I suppose it, it led me uh, to doing some more research on this. And where it where I've come to is that Asfer and APRA uh, put out uh, stats. And one of the really striking stats that I saw was that they're saying the average couple at retirement need $640,000 to retire. It's $570,000 if you're single. But $640,000, they're making some assumptions like you've got your own home. But you know, to most of advisors out there, if they only had $640,000 by the time they get to 65, say, that's not their type of client. It's That's just not that's just we they can't afford us so sort of thing. And that's they're saying the average. But what was worse is when you take it a little bit further, what in reality, that's, that's what uh, Asfa was saying was that's what you need. In reality, the average couple at 67 retire with 420000 And if it's English is a second uh, language in your family, it's actually half that again. So there's my cause. Uh, there's the thing that really for the last two or three years has really driven me to sort of say, how can we, whether that's limited advice or general advice or something like that, help those people who are in their 50s and so on around that age and you only get one chance to retire for most. And if you're in your 50s and you've only got 80, 100, 200,000 worth of super, you need to make some changes. But these people will never come see an advisor. They won't go see help. And most advisors would have to turn them away anyway. Uh, and that's the sad thing because they can't. these people can't afford that advice. So... And I say I should say two causes: um, the causes of people not retiring enough, and the second cause is that women over fifty 
are in some of the worst financial positions. Now, there's a lot of great uh, female advisors out there taking up that cause, which is wonderful because they don't want to have a 60-year-old white guy um, you know, on a cause for <laughs> helping women over 50. You, you know, I, they get that. So, But I do think it's one of the uh, two big causes uh, for people over 50. Yep, not retiring with enough and women who are financially in dire straits. And so those two areas need to be looked at. And I just thought, well, I could keep going what I'm doing, looking after my retirement, pre-retiree clients, um, or do I really want to give this a go? And that's where I've basically said, from my time, looking at that from the AFA, the consumers, and let's see how we can help those. And I should say, actually, if I take a step back, when I went out looking and I was planning to write this book, it was a money for all ages, but I kept getting really good advice saying, write what you know. And, you know, I'm a 60-year-old, I should write what I know. And it was where I've discovered these areas where that do need help. And if I look at the XY, look at the millennials and all that, the amount of coaches, the amount of podcasters, the amount of people putting advice out, helping other advisors or helping consumer directly is wonderful. It just seemed to be for the people in their 50s and 60s, there's not a lot out there uh, direct. And I just thought, well, there was a niche that I could help. Um, so I do see that the um, the profession is changing and that the people like financial coaches, uh, and I know Glenn James brought up a thing about, you know, there's, uh, I don't even know, Finn Influencers. And ASIC is looking yeah. and influ- and ASIC is looking at that. And I, I get that. Yes, you need people who've got training, have education to be able to do this, not just someone just saying, Yep, I'm gonna give advice out there and got no experience or no education. So I, I agree with that. But definitely millennials, XYs, there's lots of people out there coaching and teaching. Um, but just definitely in my uh, age bracket, not a lot. Yep, mm. and, and when you were talking about the uh, you know the men and the men in suits, I think of uh, our friend James Sutherland used to always say, you know, middle-aged white men in suits, and yep. and we wonder why we, we we can't get to the the general part of the population. Yep, totally. Um, so that's fantastic. So that's really about the concept of you know uh, looking at that middle Australia, as you said. Um, but you're really now focusing on, and, and obviously this is part of the book, which we'll get into in a second. The, the over 50s or 50 to 60 market, um, people that are approaching retirement, obviously there's probably a lot of fear in in there around, you know, their situation, what that might mean, um, time time running out, all those sorts of things. So, Yeah, no, it's money stress is is a thing. It's, it's, and it's for all age groups, uh, whether it's millennials who have got 5,000 credit card debt. The number two keep you up at night moments that an ABC survey did recently was retiring with enough. Uh, Climate change was number one, but retiring with enough, and that was across all ages. So that's not just something for 50 and 60-year-olds, but it's definitely, it. and I think a lot of advisors would find this, it's surprising even with people who have a lot of money, there's still fear of keep them up at night type moments is definitely, do I have enough? Uh, And you know, for advisors, a lot of the thing they can do is actually show you them, you know, do a projection and show that they do have enough. And just you could see the relief and just the, you know, their shoulders start to relax in, in knowing that they've got enough to retire on is, you could see it's it's a huge concern. So I do see um, the stress and the fear uh, around retirement. And, it, and there's a lot of problems with the way people even picture it. You know, you, how many times have we seen 
you're retired, which means you've got to walk hand in hand with your wife along a, a beach, or you're going to play a million games of golf. And a lot of people don't want to do that. You know, they, they, they enjoy what they're doing. They enjoy work. And it's just, as I said, um, I've, we've talked previously about this, that you just want to be in a financial position that you work because you want to rather than forced to. And that's it. If And so you may even want to just reduce your work to three days a week, but definitely don't give up. There's so many people who are forced out at 60 or 65, and they're just not equipped. Uh, Joe, Joe, Professor Joanne Earle, who a lot of people in this industry would have heard of, she's, she's the sci- head of the psychology department of Macquarie University, and she, she loves looking at the whole retirement and sci- the science around that. And she sees the four areas is, and financial is one of them, but probably the least. It's your health, what's your next big challenge, and your relationships. Um, you know, if you're, in a, if you're a couple, you may have not spent more than eight hours a day together forever. And you know, now you're going to spend 24 hours a day for the next for the rest of your lives are you actually prepared for that do you see retirement the same way is your health the right is you, you know you get, everyone's living longer but you want to be able to have quality not quantity um and you do need that next big challenge a lot of uh retiree advisors who help retirees one of the biggest thing is well what are you going to do okay it's 65 67 what are you going to do and they just people haven't been faced with that question before and it's usually a very different answer from the wife to the husband uh, and I should say to any advisor out there that you you will get a lot of pushback from a lot of still males especially older males say oh yeah I'll come and see you no I, and you as the advisor need to say no I only see both both of you husband and wife and they said no no I've got you know I know everything you need now you need to do that and you need to include both of them in the conversation because uh, especially when it comes around retirement it's surprising how they haven't spoken to each other about this and uh, and you have a box of tissue sometimes on that table as well because it can get quite emotional but it's 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 a really interesting period of your life, and uh, I think it's a great. I'm I'm right in the middle of that period, and I think it's a wonderful period of life. But it just comes with financial challenges. But people don't think about retirement uh, until sometimes it's too late, unfortunately. Yeah. Now I want to get into that that idea of retirement because I know that uh, I've had other people talk about the concept of the baby boomers have never done anything the way that you know their parents did. Yes. It's it's always around the concept of the baby boomers create a new thing. Um, so the the concept of retirement that we've you know we we hang on to as this thing that you know people stop work and now they've retired um, is changing. And obviously, a lot of that has to do with the fact that baby boomers want want to do things differently. Um, so tell us about what you think that the new thing of retirement could could be. Yeah, I think. <laughs> Definitely, and actually, if I just separate slightly, the baby boomers are coming to the end because pretty well it's 1960 or people who are 60 years of age are the end of the baby boomers. So a lot of the people I'm seeing now are that next generation and it's just above the XY generations. And unfortunately, the best name anyone can come up with them is middle age, which is <laughs> no one in my generation wants to be called middle age. I can tell you that phrase. So that's why even at the book cover, it says how to help people in their 50s and 60s because you just can't come up with a title uh, from that. So 
Baby did, did boomers. Did you call it the sandwich generation? Is I it? did. It's it's called the money sandwich after the sandwich generation because of, and this is also a bit different to the uh, the baby boomers, um, who are now from their in their eighties to to their sixties. Um, in that, a lot of those baby boomers are those people who are going on those. You see those um, cruises, those Danube River cruises, and you see all those people, um, and you know the. The group in the 50s and 60s that I deal with through the sandwich generation, uh, they want to work. Actually, they don't want to do that. They want to actually travel and travel really well, but they want to work. Uh, it might be a new challenge. It might be a side hustle. Maybe whatever it is, or they want to give back and, and help with charity or something like that, but they want to work. There's no question. That's the biggest difference between I see people who are in their 70s and 80s when they were retiring, they wanted to just give up work and travel the world and just all do whatever. But this generation definitely want to keep on working, um, but be financially able to take off a month here or take off two months there. And the sandwich generation really has come about um, in that this is the first generation that have elderly parents, and this is sort of the start of the baby boomers and the end of the war generation, is that they're living longer uh, and they're living healthier, but they're dealing, and that's why aged cares are booming, because they're looking at that lifestyle, aged care is coming to, that's, that's what they're entering into. So my generation are helping my elderly parents with aged care and estate planning, uh, and they're living, you know, to the late 80s or 90s. Um, and with the other generation, we're sandwiched between, is our millennial children. And children of all previous generations, probably by the time they left school or started university, were off. Uh, that was it. No, just due to whether it's <laughs> you're in Melbourne or Sydney or whatever city and house prices, uh, people... Uh, millennial children are living at home through university and definitely, uh, yeah, into the, until basically nearly marriage. So this, this generation that I'm in are uh, having to deal with the and extremes. This is very new, um, very unique. Yeah, because pre kids were previously the left home or elderly parents, unfortunately, had uh, passed away. So, and you're also trying to look at your own retirement. So it's, it is interesting. And I definitely see, Anyone, and I'm a financial advisor, I've met other financial advisors, and having to deal with an age, uh, an elderly parent with aged care uh, is just a minefield. And I just, anyone who's, I always just go straight to an aged care specialist. I know a few, you know a few. And yeah. because it's just, as a financial advisor, this is a, that's a hard area to deal in. So what you're saying is if, if you're a member of the sandwich generation, uh, then you've got elderly parents. Um, and you kind of feel like you need to be supporting them with their financial efforts, and yes. you've also got elder, uh, you know, elderly. You've got um, adult children who you also need to think you're supporting. So you're kind of taking on the role of three different financial aspects. Aren't you? Yeah, and I see. See, that's and I, one of the things I want to do is after now that I'm uh, stopping a financial advisor is actually uh, help coach people about this because this is a minefield and. One of the things that advisors keep saying when I speak to them or with the AFA was one of the hardest things I do is to prove my value and to charge an appropriate fee. Well, here's a perfect circumstance for you or opportunity for you because if you ask you know, a traditional fact find for anyone in my sandwich generation of age group and you think, what are the three priorities? Yes, okay, I want to retire with enough money. Uh, secondly, I want to pay off my home. 
and or the probably the renovation to my home, and thirdly, uh, have enough put aside for holidays. But in reality, and that's a fact find, just in terms. But if reality, if you get to understand this generation, the most likely three answers that you would is I want to be able to retire, and understand you know the retirement as in. That's an umbrella. It's not just financial. It's health. It's my next challenge. It's my relationship and all that. Uh, it's definitely my second priority is how do I help my millennial children get them the best financial start to life? I can see they're already into, they've got gambling apps. They're already got Afterpay. They've got credit cards. And yeah, you know, it's, it's a side anecdote. But when I was their age, we didn't have an ATM. We had to go to the bank. If we didn't get to the bank before four o'clock on a Friday, we had no money for the weekend. So we got to budgeting by default in my age group. So this age group, really, access to easy money is a real problem. And it keeps their mothers, especially, doesn't seem to worry the fathers that much, but it worries the mothers. It keeps them up at night. So if you can help that solution, provide them simple cash flow, cash flow solutions and or direct them um, to some of the great podcasters out there or coaches or something like that to get them started. And then third priority is, I don't know how to have my conversation with my parents about aged care and they're getting, they're not as good as they used to be. They've had a fall and they're all saying to me, the only way you're going to get me out of my house is to carry me, carry me out in a box. And a lot of people have had that conversation. So if you can solve and help them with those three areas, um, you can charge whatever you want. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, realistically, but you can prove the value you have. And just if I can just on one last final point on that phrase is unfortunately the code of ethics has now brought in that you can't because they're worried about elder abuse and all this. If you've got myself as a client, you're not allowed to help their elderly parents. Now, that's that's a tough call because if I'm helping that client, for them to have the trust and the value what you're doing to me to introduce you to my parents is a big step for them. To be able to then say, okay, I'm not allowed to do this uh, is tough. Now, what I do say is that you can still give general advice. You can still give help. You can still give that. Or you can, if they really do need proper financial advice, you can introduce them to someone else in your practice and all those sort of things. So you can still do that. So I wouldn't be put off by someone who I've had advice. They will know. The code of ethics says I can't do that. You absolutely can still do that, and you can put them onto a help their kids with two things: cash flow and get them onto a level trauma policy straight away. Um, so you can do that. You'll have those clients for life because you're helping them the things that they worry most about, which is their adult children and their elderly parents, as well as you're helping their retirement. Yeah, yeah, well said, actually. And an interesting concept about the cash flow, as you've just brought up, then when. Uh, when the next generation is not dealing with cash, they, they're just numbers. They're just numbers. It's just numbers. And I, I've, I must admit, I, s- I spoke at the start of uh, 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 a staff day that Glenn Hare and Jessica Brady put on for their staff uh, a couple of months ago. And Glenn actually asked me at the end of that in front of his staff and new, all the new advisors, do you still see this as an industry that's worthwhile and I absolutely see it as a there's so many opportunities um, you know technology will catch up it will make advisor practices far more efficient but if I saw the two biggest areas that people in your 20s and 30s and actually right through I see is cash flow 
you know, we help small businesses with cash flow. We tell them that, you know, you, to help you get your business right, you do need to understand your cash flow, your profit and loss, your expenses, and all those sort of things. Well, you do that. And there's so many programs out there that help people with that. And so many advisors now get into that. But I just see that as a boom market. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. If you get their cash flow, you can then help them in all other aspects. You can get their investment going. You can get their super. You can get their super not in their default balance. You can get their super into the high growth and explain the reasons why. You can get their, those people into uh, get the safety net of trauma insurance. And it's not, you know, I've unfortunately had a client the, the daughter of a client, her husband died at 30 of a brain tumor. It does unfortunately happen. And uh, having a level trauma, one will not have to have the conversations I'm having with my 50 and 60-year-old clients when their trauma premiums are going through the roof because they're on level premiums. So there's definitely huge opportunities for people in the 30s, 40s, uh, and especially if you can get technology to make it faster, more efficient, because the one thing I do see is I could see 15 clients easily when I first started. The average advisor out there is only seeing five or six clients or five or six appointments a week because I've got so much of the education, compliance and stuff. And that needs to change. Yeah. It may not be I, the 15, I, but 10, maybe 10 or so. I find it really interesting that you know financial product advice is the part that all the legislation and compliance and everything is around. You know, are you recommending yes. a financial product? And if so, then, you know, what are all the conflicts and, and disclosures you need to make? Yet, when you think about all the great work planners do from planning, goal setting, therapy in some ways, through to, you know, professional mm. relationships, networks, implement all the pieces around that, all the, the, the accountability stuff, the coaching, the mindset stuff that you went through. Surely there's there's opportunities for someone, you know, obviously like yourself that gives away their their authorised representative status to, you know, there are a lot of other areas to help in. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of times when probably when FOFA came out uh, and a lot of advisors who were helping their clients get into their first investment property, for example, and they say, oh, we can't do that now. Uh, it's It's got to be around product and we can only give advice around products, that, you know. And no, you realize you can still, you need to help your client. Otherwise, they see you as, well, you're just trying to sell us a product. And if unless you can make money from the super fund I have or the insurance policy I have, you're not you're not going to be able to do anything. Uh, and advisors do need to be better at that. They need to sort of say, we're providing an overall service, uh, and which includes exactly as you said, um, get the core basics right. And once you've got all the core basics right, their super, their insurance, their uh, debt, their cash flow, Okay, then we look at the next things. Well, what are your goals? Well, your goal settings and all those sort of things. And it could be to get into their first investment property and you can help them with what the – you're not going to buy the property for them, but you can absolutely help them and talk them into this and get the savings plan and work out the cash flow on that and the tax effectiveness of that. And then it's the third thing and it's the higher things. Well, what are – the relationship setting and goals and, and what you're doing. And advisors are in the best place for this. Uh, and I think – there is, and you can charge for the value uh, that you're yep. providing that. And I just think, yes, the one, the more you get caught up in it's the product, or even as I see a lot of advisors doing, we're talking about, as I said, in the early 2000s, I'm seeing that similar trend, model portfolios. A lot of young advisors, all they want to talk about, look at these brilliant model portfolios I'm building for my clients. The clients don't see value in that. 
that's that's a given. Yes, you're supposed to get a good return for me. You're a financial advisor. Uh, that's not, I, and I'm not interested in that. What's the other value you're going to provide for me? Where's the relationship building? Uh, where's the care factor? Where's the, you know, I was told years ago you need to have contact at minimum 20 times a year with your client. And that could be a newsletter is 12 times. But that means also phone calls, meetings, uh, and understanding that. And I, I still find, and I've been saying it for 30 years, uh, do you know what your client's uh, favorite coffee beverages or uh, alcohol is. You know, there's no use if you get a client coming into your house, into your office, and they come in every six months or every year. And every time they come in, you ask them, "Well, how would you would you like a coffee?" Well, yes, I've been telling you for three years now. I like cappuccino with one sugar. Write it down on your database somewhere. Just know that people want to feel like you know them, that you care for them, that you 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 really take an interest in them. Their investments is separate. They want it in the first of all, no, um, you know, clients don't care what you know until they know that you care. Simple as that. And um, and I say about the alcohol, I'm not trying to do anything that's, that's anti-FOFA or anti this uh, client of ethics, code of ethics, but sometimes a client refers you a cl- someone, uh, their next client. And I'm a great believer in teaching advisors how to get your next referral. Uh, and I could go on for a whole another hour just on that side of it. But the most simple thing is, if I learned very quickly on that I gave a client who referred me this lovely new client and I gave him a bottle of red wine. It was a really lovely, expensive bottle of red wine. He never drank red wine. He only drank white wine. He actually took it. He sort of appreciated it, but did say, you know, by the way, you know, I had to give this away because I don't drink red wine. You feel bad because you think I should have just asked the question at some point. What do you like? And so, this, yeah, so I think there's a lot of things like that that I think um, advisors have the opportunity to prove their value and it's all about building relationships uh, and I do see that's going to be now that we've got the education and um, that side of the technical it's going to be learning the EQ not not just the IQ that's the next yep. big wave it is exactly right now you've written the book um, the yes. The, the money, money sandwich. Sandwich. Now that talks about that, and it's basically for, like you said, those fifty to uh, you know, age fifty to sixty. Um, yeah, readers. It's, it's to help those, and there's a and there's a backup website that goes with that, and and has uh, information on that, and it really is, as I said before, help those in the. Sorry, there was two reasons for it. One was to help those who were never going to see an advisor or could afford to see an advisor, so that there was something, and. Uh, and I was, I'm hoping to go out and coach and speak about this in more uh, over than when we can get out of lockdown. Yep. But the second thing was, as a DIY book, it is the worst DIY book. It's because everywhere throughout the whole book, it says, okay, there's the basics. And now he gets into the more complex part. And by the end of that chapter, I says, yep, see how complex that is? That's why you get a financial advisor. They help you with this. And there's the whole last chapter is what to expect with getting a financial advisor, what that meeting will be like, how to actually find one. Um, so it's it's I wanted something because you see a lot of DIY books out there that saying this is all you ever need. You'll never go need to see a financial advisor. Well, this is the opposite. It's a DIY book, but really, don't you do you haven't you got better things to do with your time? Go see a financial advisor. But of course, there are some people who just won't uh, or can't afford it, and so he at least gives them all the basics across from cash flow, debt, super, investing, and so on. But also chapters purely on were well, your the sandwich generation 
and your elderly parents. You're the sandwich generation, and here, how do you help your millennial children? Um, so helping all that. And I just think from an advisor's point of view, I, I'd love for any advisor to, to buy the book, read it, see it is. And if it's something, I don't think there'll be any advisor out there who wouldn't read it and say, oh, okay, that will help me with my next meeting with a pre-retiree couple, um, understanding how they think, what's their challenges, what they're concerned about, what they sleep there, uh, keep them up at night moments. Um, but I also think advisors wanting to give a present to their clients. And so, okay, it sounds like a bit of a pitch here, but it's, it's something that if there is very few things advisors have out there that you can be proud of giving to your client, which actually is very pro advice. And so I definitely will always want to be an advocate for the benefits of advice, which this book does. Um, and there's a section on the front page open enough. So if you want to write it, your own personal message on there, you can do that. Uh, or if you want me to sign it, I'm very happy to sign it for your client. Um, but it's, yeah, I just think it helps definitely advises, um, helps their C and D type clients. It helps for them to, even their, even their top clients, give it to them because all it does is reinforce the value they provide to their clients. Yep, fantastic. I was actually going to just say that exact thing, um, that it would be fantastic for advisors to give to those clients in those, in those demographics um, mm. and whether they're – and it certainly does encourage those clients to then come back and, and spend some time with their financial planner and financial advisor going through and creating something soon. So thank you, Mark. How can people get hold of that or check out that website? What's the name of the website? It's uh, themoneysandwich.com. Simple as that. Fantastic. And you are also working with planners in developing those um, relationship skills? Yeah. um, There's definitely some practices that I've helped where I've just gone into their practice itself and they may have, you know, uh, six dozen advisors there and I will just speak to them. And it'll be talking, it talks them in two parts. One is about the book in that the sandwich generation and and, and how to understand that, what's their challenges and how the – so as an advisor, you can provide more value. But secondly, it's all those EQ, not just the IQ side of it. Just to, you know, as I said about that, I always thought that the best way to get a new client was to get from the last client and how to build and get them to introduce you to your new client, how to build referral networks, how to do all this. And uh, as I said, that EQ, not just the IQ and love speaking about that. So anyway, I can help advisors. Uh, I will now have time. I'm now an unemployed ex-financial advisor after 33 years phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fantastic, Uh, Mark. Thanks for coming on and sharing your journey with us. It's been amazing. And obviously, as I mentioned before, thank you for all the giving back you've done um, throughout the the industry and uh, through the associations, but also even now the giving back you're doing through the book so really appreciate it uh, and being fantastic to, being fantastic to talk to you thanks Fraser and appreciate the opportunity well there you have it another episode of the XY Advisor podcast I'm Fraser Jack and I'm joined by Emily Blanche hey Emily hey Fraser how are you going amazing it's always a pleasure to chat to you at the end of these podcast episodes and we get to do a really cool part of the, of the week for us is to do the shout outs Yes, let's do it. So today, I would love to give a shout out to XY advisor and legend, Kathy KS. So she got on the front foot with the upcoming changes to income protection that's coming down the pipeline. And she wanted to summarize it in a way that would be easy for her clients to understand. Those that have income protection already and those who don't have it yet, things to think about. So she put together a document and then shared it with everyone in the community and said, feel free to use it and share it with your clients. So super collaborative. There's really a, a part of that brain's trust and, and um, you know sharing of ideas and, and IP more than anything. Super helpful. So thank you, Kathy. Kathy.